Well, hello. It's great to be here with all of you today. Um, if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you after the sermon, uh, after the service. Um, but I'm Chris and Diane Corley's uh, son-in-law. Sarah Coleman is, is my wife. And so uh, I just can't tell you how thankful I am for this church, um, for the way that you've loved my family, for the way that you've loved my wife. And um, so it's a huge blessing to be here with you. And um, I'm really thankful for y'all. Uh, as we actually come to God's word, um, I'm actually going to preach, I, I had told um, Tim that I would preach on verses 17 through 25, but I'm actually going to preach on verses 1 through 25, so a little bit more ground to cover, um, but by God's grace we'll make it through. Um, and really the reason that I want to do that, the reason that I want to cover both of those sections is because there's really a holistic picture um, the genealogy of Jesus and also Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, um, they're both in there for the same reason. And that's actually that Matthew knows that in order for you to know someone, you have to know their story, right? In order for you to know Jesus, you have to know his backstory. You have to know where he comes from. If there are any people in here who like Marvel movies or superhero movies or comic books, this is something that superhero movies do really well. They understand that in order for you to care about the hero, in order for you to know the hero and feel like you can relate to the hero, you have to know their backstory. You have to know where they come from. And so Matthew, his, actual, his burden for the reader in this first chapter of his epistle, his burden is that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus in relationship. And so in order for you to know Jesus better, he's going to show you the origins of Jesus. He's going to show you the backstory of the hero because you can't know the hero without knowing the backstory. Right? You, you wouldn't understand Spider-Man unless you knew he was a, a nerd kid from Queens who got bit by a radioactive spider. You wouldn't understand Captain America unless you knew that he grew up in physical weakness that actually prepared him to be morally strong so that when he was gifted with physical strength, he would actually use it for good. Right? These backstories of our, of our heroes, they tell us something. They tell us something about who they are. And in the same way, Matthew knows that you have to understand the backstory to understand the hero. You have to know Jesus' origins to know who he is. And so as we look at this passage, I hope that you um, keep that in your mind. Uh, so I'll read Matthew 1. We'll go all the way. It's going to be sort of long, but we'll get through it all the way from verse 1 all the way through verse 25. I'll pray really quick, and then we'll jump into the sermon. So here now, God's holy, inspired, and errant life-giving, sufficient word. It's given to us in, in love for our good. Um, so this is verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Noshan, and Noshan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim was the father of Azer, and Azer was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eliezer, the father of Matahan. And Matahan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the Babylonian deportation, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph woke from sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. I'm going to pray for the preaching of it, and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, um, as I prepare to preach your word, Lord, I just ask that you would be with me, that you would be present in this place through your Holy Spirit, that you would allow all of us to be attentive to what Matthew has for us here today. Lord, be in my words, calm my anxious heart. In your name I pray, amen. And so as I said before, we're really going to look at this chapter, the first chapter of Matthew, in two sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17, which is the genealogy, or the ancestry of Jesus. And then we're going to look at verses 18 through 25, which is the the story of the incarnation of Jesus. And so ancestry and incarnation are going to be our two headings. So first we're going to look at ancestry. So look with me again at Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that might seem like a normal sentence to you, but if you were a first century Israelite, that sentence would knock your socks off. Because every single word, almost every single phrase in that sentence is fraught with deep meaning. Okay, first of all, the genealogy. Okay, that word is the word Genesis. And if you know your Bible, you know that that's actually a callback to the first book of the Bible, when God created the whole world. And so that's how Matthew starts his gospel. He says this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. He's making a big claim here. He's saying that as important as God creating the heavens and the earth was, as important of a beginning, cosmically, as that was, that's how significant the story that I have to share with you today is. The birth of Jesus is just as significant as God creating the heavens and the earth. All right, the, the genesis of who? Of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not a last name. We, we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ often enough that we might begin to think of it as something you know, normal, but actually, if you were a first century Israelite, that's a stunning statement because you've been waiting your whole life. You and your father and your father's father and your father's father's father have been praying that the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And so this is a huge statement. 
He's saying, this, this child who was born, he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. That word Christos in Greek, it means anointed one. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Messiah was this figure that was, that was prophesied about throughout the whole Old Testament. Um, writing about uh, the, the Psalms that talk about the birth of the Messiah. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his reflection on the Psalms. For those who first read these Psalms, Psalm 110 and others, as poems about the birth of Christ, that birth primarily meant something very militant. The hero, the judge, or the champion, or giant killer, who was to fight and beat death, hell, and the devil, had at last arrived. And the evidence suggests that our Lord also thought of himself in those terms. And so when you hear the word Christ, don't just skip over that because you hear it often. Jesus is the Christ, but that's a huge, significant statement. He's the giant killer. Now, speaking of giant killers, look at, look at that next little statement. It's the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Okay, David was the first giant killer. He defeated Goliath in order to free Israel from the Philistines. And he did it through God. God empowered him to do that because he put his faith in God. And David was raised up to be king over Israel by the Lord. And ever after, every king in, in the line of Israel was judged by whether or not they followed in the footsteps of David. David was a man after God's own heart, and his zeal was for the Lord. And so every king after, if they did well, it was said they walked in the footsteps of their father David. But if they did poorly, it was said of them, and they abandoned the way of their father David. So David is a huge hero of the people of Israel, and Jesus is the son of David. But this is also important because the Christ would be a son of David. All the prophets agreed that the one who would come, who would save Israel from their sin, who would be a righteous king, who would be the anointed one, he would be a son of David. And in 2 Samuel, God had made a promise to David that he would establish his throne forever. In verse 11, uh, Samuel, sent by, sent by the Lord to speak to David, said this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, because at this, at this time David had wanted to build the temple. But, but Samuel says this astounding thing, the Lord will build you a house, David. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God had made this promise to David that someone, one of his descendants, would establish the kingdom. The kingdom of God would be established under him forever and that there would be an offspring who would come who would sit on the throne of David and rule everything. He would rule the whole world. And it seemed in some ways that Solomon was the fulfillment of this promise that, that, God, made to, that God made to David. Because in some ways, he was. Solomon did build a temple for God's name. Solomon did uh, rule the nations. And under him, the, the expanse of the kingdom of Israel was at its largest point. And there was peace in the land. But you see that the problem is Solomon fell away from his worship of the Lord. 
And then ever after him, the, the kings of Israel got worse and worse. The son of Solomon, Rehoboam, was so bad that actually 10 of the tribes left. And from then on, only, only two tribes followed under the kings descended from David. And you have a couple good kings who, who actually follow in the footsteps of David, but after that, there's this, there's this decline where the kings go further and further away from the Lord. They get worse and worse until you get to the Babylonian deportation where God allows Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to completely wipe out the armies of Israel and destroy the temple and take the people of God into exile, right? And so it looked like that promise that he had made to David was not fulfilled, right? Solomon does not fully fulfill that promise in 2 Samuel of an offspring of David who would sit on a throne and who would rule righteously and whose throne would be established forever. At the time that Matthew writes Matthew 1, there hasn't been a king who's been from the descendants, uh, from the line of David in hundreds of years. And so it looks like God has forgotten his promise. But the prophets that God sent were constantly reminding God's people, God is not a God who forgets his promise. And so listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah, talking about this same king, talking about this Christ, he said this in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so who's the king? Who's, who's the offspring that, that was being spoken of by Samuel when he, spoke to, when he spoke to David? It's the Christ. It's Jesus. The son of David. Now look with me again. This is the last thing we'll, we'll grab from Matthew 1.1 and then we'll go much, much quicker through the rest of these verses. Um, but not only is Jesus the Christ and the son of David, he's also the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of the Israelites. He was the father of the Israelite people. He followed God based on his faith when he didn't know where God was leading him. And so he was probably the biggest hero of the Israelite people. And God made a covenant. He made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. But also, stunningly, in verse 18 of Genesis 22, the Lord said this to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there's this stunning promise that Jesus fulfills that God made to Abraham and it's that all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. I know that it's Jesus who fulfills it because Galatians 3.16 says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Jesus, the Christ, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the king of the Jews, but he's also the blessing to the whole world. Okay, now, having laid that groundwork, we're going to go a lot quicker through the rest of these verses of the genealogy. And there's a lot that I could say about each of these people, but we don't have the time. So, sorry, bear with me. We're going to skip some names. 
Um, but try to catch the pattern here, okay? There's a pattern, and watch where the pattern breaks, okay? So starting in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez. I'm going to skip down a little bit for time's sake. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azer, and Azer, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Christ was born, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So for 15 straight verses, you have the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, and then you get to Joseph, and he's the husband of Mary. Right? And that's important in this genealogy because Jesus has no earthly father. He, he's, he's among a category that only has two, two people in it, Adam and David. No, Adam and Jesus, sorry. Adam and Jesus, my bad. I'm glad you all caught that. You all looked confused, so you know your Bibles. Um, yes, Adam and David, Adam and Jesus. They're the only two people who don't have earthly fathers. They're the only two sons who don't have earthly fathers, right? Their, their, their only father is, is the heavenly father. And so Jesus, he, he's born of a virgin. He, Joseph is not his biological father, okay? And then we get to this uh, verse 17, which is sort of interesting because you see the the whole genealogy is broken up into these three sections of 14. Now, it would be really cool if that was an exhaustive list, but it actually isn't. It's a selective list. Um, not every single name in the genealogy of Jesus is mentioned there. But the reason is that um, the, the writer here, Matthew, is more interested in Christology than he is in chronology. Okay? He's, he's actually making a theological point with his numbers here. And so what, what you need to realize is the number seven is an incredibly important number in the Bible, probably the most important number. And Jesus is the seventh seven, the way that Matthew has set this up, right? There are, there are three 14s, so six sevens, and then Jesus is the seventh seven. And the number seven, it represents completion. And so Jesus is completion upon completion. He's perfection. He's the fulfillment of the entire history of Israel and the entire history of the world. And so now, as we get into the birth story of Jesus, what you need to know is this is the turning point of history, right? If you, were, if you were a first century Israelite and you just read that genealogy, you would be on the edge of your seat. You'd be riveted wanting to know when it says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, you'd be riveted. How did it take place? Because he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And he's the Christ, uh, writing about this, C.S. Lewis said, and the birth of Christ is the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. And so now look with me at, at verses 18 and 19. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to, and willing to, put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
And so a few things in that, in that two-verse section that I want to point out to you. One, uh, Mary and Joseph are actually not married at this point. They're betrothed. But if you're wondering, well, why does it call her, uh, why, why does it call Joseph Mary's husband in verse 19, right? It says, and, and her husband, Joseph. That's because to be betrothed in the Israelite culture was a huge commitment. As, as, as committed as you were in marriage, that's how committed you were in betrothal. And so once you were betrothed, you started calling your spouse by the, by the term either husband or wife. So if you were a man, you would, you would call your betrothed your wife. And if you were a woman, you would call your betrothed your husband. And so they're not married at this point, uh, and they haven't come together. But in verse 18, you see there that before they came together, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so two big things from, from this two verses. One, this child is not an ordinary child. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is a divine conception. This is a miracle. But two, Joseph has no idea of this. And so Joseph assumes what I think any one of us would assume. He thinks Mary has been unfaithful to him. And so I'm sure he was devastated by this. Right? Imagine the feeling of being in love with someone and, and believing they love you and then finding out we're not married yet, but she's with child. But then look at the response that Joseph, look at the way in which he responds to finding out this news. It says, and Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, and so he resolved to divorce her quietly. So he could have pressed charges under the Israelites' law, but he, he didn't want to do that, right? Because Joseph's character had been shaped by the character of his God. He was just and merciful because his God was just and merciful. And he's a righteous man because he had studied the law of God. And so he knew that what he should do is divorce Mary quietly. But even in the midst of the turmoil of him trying to do the right thing, the God-honoring thing, but also probably really struggling with grief over finding out that Mary is with child, the Lord whisks him into this dream and has an angel appear to him. And so look at verse 20. But as he, as he was considering these things, right, as he's turning it over in his mind, what should I do? What should I do? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, because he's a descendant from the line of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, did you catch that? She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a huge statement. And Matthew is putting it there very intentionally. First of all, because that's what happened, but second of all, because he wants you to know your Savior. He wants you to know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the one that came. He came for us. He was born to bear our iniquities. Isaiah 53 says this in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his soul out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is written about the root of Jesse, right? The son of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. Jesus is the, is the son of Jesse, the son of David. He's the fulfillment of this passage. And he's the one who came to bear the iniquity of us all. 
and to have his life poured out so that he could make many to be accounted righteous. And then we move on a little bit further into verses 22 and 23. He's also the fulfillment of another ancient prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Because Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel, they're they're not just names, they're facts about who Jesus is. They're symbolic of the mission of this Savior, of this Christ. And so when you see that he's named Emmanuel. Jesus isn't just a man named God with us. Jesus is God with us. That's the point that, that Matthew is trying to make here. We know from John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the, be- in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh. Right? God himself, he became flesh. He took on a human body, just like your body. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the Son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Saints, Jesus took on a body to identify with you. He took on every struggle that you face. He, he woke up with headaches. He, he stubbed his toe. He was physical. He was material. The transcendent God entered his own creation for you. That's the, that's the central miracle of the Bible. Please catch that. There's a, there's a book that my mother-in-law showed me yesterday, and so I didn't have time to read the whole book. Um, but, but I was skimming through it because it looked really interesting. It's called Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. And there was this really striking quote, so I'm going to read it to you. The flabbergasting fact that God himself came down and chose to be conceived and carried to term and born the son of a real living woman. In this way, he ennobled all humanity, even our very materiality. To try to abstract the mind from the body or the spirit from matter is to commit the Gnostic error and to destroy what we truly are as human beings. God made you with a spirit, but he also made you with a body. And we're living in a culture that's constantly, there's, there's sort of a new Gnosticism now, right? Because you have a phone that is constantly telling you the most important part of you is your mind, right? It gives you the, the experience of being a, an ephemeral spirit that can fly around and see things from all over the world. And, and we can begin to move back towards Gnosticism and think only our minds matter, but your body matters. God made you to feel the, the wind on your, on your skin. He made you to smell the dew. And then he experienced it too, Out of all of creation, God and you have a secret that you share with each other. You've both experienced what it is to be man. Nothing else. Not the angels. Only us and God. And so lastly, I I just want to point out uh, that God with us, Emmanuel, actually shows up three times in the book of Matthew. It's sort of the main premise of the book of Matthew, that Jesus is God with us. So we see it here at the beginning, but we also see it in Matthew 18, right in the middle of the book. In Matthew 18, verse 20, it says this, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I with them. 
So Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. There are more than two of us in this room gathered in Jesus' name. That means he's here. He's God with us. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the very end, the, the, the very completion of the book of Matthew says this. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's God with us. And when we, when we worship in his name, he's with us. And when we go out to make disciples, he's with us. You don't take a single step alone. C.S. Lewis said this, the son of God became, became man in order, to, in order to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus became man so that he could connect us back to God. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold, Emmanuel, God with us. And he paid with his own blood. He died on a cross so that we could be with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm overwhelmed by your grace. I'm overwhelmed that you would take on human likeness and even human flesh. That you would, you would take on our burdens, that you would take on our, our struggles, that you would take on our materiality and that you would ennoble them. Lord, thank you that, that you love us so much that, that you became man, that you stepped into your own story and that you paid with your death so that we could have relationship with you. God, please remind us as we leave this place that we never walk alone, that you're God with us. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.